0: Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. So I find it quite nice that we're going to be finishing our discussion at the beginning of Advent because it really speaks to what Athanasius is trying to get to. And he even ends his book, and I'll be frank, I kind of forgot this, he ends his work on the anticipation of Advent, that great season which is really the season we constantly live in. It's the unfinished season of the church year. Because although we celebrate for the next four weeks, at the same time, we're always waiting for the advent of Christ. We're always awaiting his return. And Athanasius will steer us in that direction at the end of his work. But where we left off on in in chapter 50 is where Athanasius is continuing to make this argument against the Gentiles. Of course, he is a Gentile. But refuting them, pointing out, look at what Christ has done after his death and his resurrection and his ascension. He makes this excellent argument for which of the Gentile rulers, kings, emperors, ranging from, he broadly says, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Indians, invoking the great empires of the ancient world. And of course, Athanasius still does not live to see many other great empires that come and go after him. And he points out how is it that any other of these empires really spread its influence and converted peoples to their own false idols, false gods, false religions. And you don't see that happening. And yet he points out like the miracle of Christ, though not being alive in the flesh, at least, in terms of you know being still physically here on earth, but after ascending into heaven with his flesh, has taken over the world, the known world, at least in Athanasius time, spreading throughout what we call the Roman Empire, spreading beyond the Roman Empire, even within Athanasius time, uh, has at this point reached, uh, or is heading towards China, almost reaching China at this point, is even in India, and has continued to permeate uh, throughout Africa, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and further. And so he points out how The Greeks, you know, have this wise philosophy they're well known for, and yet Greek philosophy has not dominated and converted, you know, all these other peoples into their false gods. And yet Christ is the one who is changing hearts, changing minds, and not only changing hearts and minds, but you see it demonstrated that when a Celtic tribe, for example, converts to Christianity, they abandon the old ways, the old gods. And they go from not only abandoning whom they're worshiping, from the false gods, from the idols and the demons, to worshiping the true God, but they also change their warlike ways. And they go from constant warfare to being peaceable, or what the Romans would call you know, becoming civilized. And what we would say, being civilized, no longer engaging in just rash and constant and open a warfare. And this is something that is interesting to think about, because we live in a time and a place where we see crumbling of civilization, where we see that as Christendom, you know, has long been gone, and there hasn't been Christendom in hundreds of years, but now as even the, at least lip service to Christianity, being the professed or unofficial religion, you know, of various nation states, is going away and melting away, you see this return to the old ways of humanity. You see how further chaos is erupting from once there was once order from having the rule of Christ, at least, if not always in the hearts of men, at least being professed as that's the open allegiance and the goal for any group of people. So it shouldn't really surprise us that if we know our history, we see how what Athanasius is saying is quite correct, that as Christianity is spreading, civilization is also spreading, that it's changing the shape and the face Not just of Europe, but all those other tribes that it's impacting throughout the African nations, throughout India, eventually getting to China. And then as history continues, China will reverse itself, start to expel Christians, start to persecute it, likewise with uh, those in India. And then we'll start to have more of a European flair, but always having an African presence, a Middle Eastern presence, and a Far East presence of Christianity until we have the great missionary movements Which, you know, love it or hate it with colonialism, one of the great things that clearly God used, you know, the expansion of the European nation states was also for the propagation of the gospel as it went out into uh, all of the world once again, as it once had done in the early church and even in Athanasius' time. So Athanasius, he makes this quote talking about the civilization of the pagan nations. Yeah.
1: For just a second, what chapter are you on again?
0: 50. 50, 50, 50. 50, I'm about to jump into to 52 right. there, kind of summarized, right. 50 and 51 there. So in 52, he's making this argument about, quote, you know, who then is it who has done this? Who is he who's united in peace, those who hated each other, if not the beloved son of the father, the common savior of all, Jesus Christ, who in his love submitted to all things for our salvation? For even from of old it had been prophesied concerning the peace ushered in by him. The scripture says, and that he goes once again, as he constantly does, back to the scriptures, pointing us to, in this case, Isaiah 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into sickles. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither will they learn any more to wage war. Now, Athanasius is not saying that this has been completely fulfilled. Obviously, it is It has not. Christ even tells us, and he'll tell us in today's gospel, that there will be wars, you know, up until the Great Tribulation, until his return. But he makes the point that it's already permeating the air, it's already spreading, that as Christ goes forth through his church, through the people of God who are preaching and speaking of who Christ is and what he's done, the gospel, it's changing and converting those whom once were hostile against God. And those who once, you know, took up arms even against each other, you know, whom we would commonly say the barbarians, the barbaric tribes, they're now laying down their swords and their plowshares and becoming peaceful. This is why that, you know, to kind of step ahead another uh, century or two, when Augustine is alive, who's after Athanasius, when the fall of the Western Roman Empire occurs, when Rome is sacked, so many people in Augustine's time are questioning, Is this the end? Is this the end of the world? Rome has fallen. This is the great empire. You know, uh, are the pagan gods right and Christianity is wrong? And Augustine sits down and writes his tome, The City of God, his magnificent um, work, his classic masterpiece, uh, answering these questions, saying that, like, the city of man is not the same as the city of God, but we see that Christ's kingdom is permeating and impacting and affecting the nations of the world. So Athanasius would definitely not say that this is, you know, the completion and fulfillment of Isaiah 2. But he notices that Christ promises this, and we're seeing nations who were once ununited, at war, and constantly at each other's throats, changing and turning, you know, to Christ, and altering how they interact and act with one another. And so he says the following thing. He says that this is not something unbelievable, And as much as even now the barbarians, who have an innate savagery of manners, while they still sacrifice their idols, rage against one another, they cannot bear to remain without a sword for a single hour. But when they hear the teaching of Christ, they immediately turn to farming instead of war, and instead of arming their hands with swords stretched out to them in prayer, and in a word, instead of fighting amongst themselves, they arm themselves against the devil and the demons, subduing them with sobriety and virtue of soul. This, on the one hand, the proof of the Savior's divinity— and that of which human beings were unable to learn among idols, they've learned from him. That is, they learned from Christ. On the other hand, no small refutation of the weakness and nothingness of demons and idols. The demons, knowing their weakness, because of this, formally set human beings at war with each other, lest if they cease from from mutual strife, they should turn to battle against the demons. So this is something that I think is, is fascinating. Athanasius makes the point that it works to Satan's... Hope his plans to destroy humanity, to have us warring against one another. And so it's only natural that with you know, the tribes and the nations you know warring against each other, it's destroying those made in the human image. It's destroying those made in the image of God. And the demons, the evil one, has a jealousy of human beings because we are made in God's image. Because God has come down and has redeemed us. And so the demons have a motivation of destroying humans and humanity. It's not merely having a false worship for them, but also to destroy us. And so when you see Athanasius talking about how the gospel is spreading and the gospel of peace is spreading, it defangs, it hinders the demonic plan to have us attacking each other at each other's throats, which applies more than just to nations. Yes?
2: I think it also has the fact that we're tearing down the war. We're tearing down the um, old world and replacing it with the new world and the first people in are the Christians. Today, I'm talking about Ukraine. and that is, you know, they're totally in rival Uh, and whatever possessed Putin to go over there to begin with, we'll never know, but, you know. The point is is that I think the Lord uses that to re to, to bring us back, bring Christianity back, so that the people that are at their lowest point in their lives see what Christianity can do for them. Mm-hmm. you know, And I think that that is partially the reason for war. and it doesn't matter what the people, I mean the demons or whatever, they take down this world, and they think they've won, but they haven't. You see, because then there's that other step. The Christians come in, they feed, they clothe, they help rebuild, that kind of thing.
0: Even, in, yes, in the opportunities that present themselves, in the yes. midst of great tragedy. And that's where, I mean, we hear in Scripture that Paul you know, tells us that even through the suffering, through the trials, through all the evil that this world has that God will use it for his ultimate purpose.
2: Exactly. And that
0: we, you know, as the people of God, it's not for us to to wait. It's for us to to act, to share, to be, you know, that hand who lifts out, you know, to one another, to help those who are in need. We hear it in Matthew 25. We'll touch on Matthew 24 because it's the parallel to today's gospel reading from Mark. But we won't touch on the very next chapter. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are addressing the same issues when it comes to Christ's return. And then if you go into Matthew 25, we won't today, but in Matthew 25, it talks about what does it look like to be the gospel people? What does it look like for those who are awaiting the return of their Savior? And it's not awaiting him in the sense of, you know, you're waiting on the bus to come, which I fear too much of the church is like that. We know that he's returning that we have our tickets. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were redeemed and we sit around and we tarry and we forget all the parables about the wicked label, excuse me, the wicked lazy servants who did nothing with what their master left with them. And it's not saying that that's, oh, that's a work salvation you're preaching. No, no, it's, it doesn't matter how much work you do on the farm, you're never earning the master's blessing. It's that the master has redeemed you and has given you a task. And the big question is, do you really trust that master? Do you really trust what he's done for you? Or are you really relying upon a cheap grace in which you don't you profess with your lips that he's king, but then you don't serve him as a king? And I think here in the States it's easy for us to forget that. We haven't been under a king, at least a, a man who is a king, or a woman who is a queen for that matter. For some, you know, several hundred years, and so the concept of, of kings and royalties is something lost upon us, you know, in the modern and postmodern world. But we profess that, yeah, we have no, you know, there is no King George the <clears> third, <throat> much less, um, you know, King Charles uh, the second or the third um, over us. But there is a true king over us who are Christians. You know, our citizenship that is in heaven requires us to bow down, for every knee shall bow down to him. And that's something for us, I encourage you to reflect upon in Advent. What does it look like to truly bow down to your king? And when we pray, you know, thy will be done, to really mean that like, we will enact thy will, you know, what is your will, O Lord? Let me walk in that, you know, when I do not walk in your will, rebuke me and pull me back so that I may be a good servant to you. And so that we may hear those words, Lord willing, at the end of the age, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I've entrusted you with little, you know, and now I entrust you with much. You know? And that's the call for us Christians in this time of Advent. And we see here with Athanasius that what he brings up to our attention, to our mind, <clears throat> is that as we go in, I'm looking now at chapter 54, in case you're curious, is that quote, therefore just as if someone wishes to see God, who is invisible by nature, he's not seen at all, understands and know him from his works, so let one who does not see Christ with his mind learn of him from the works of his body, and test whether they be human or of God. If they be of human, let them mock, but they're known not to be human, but of God, let him not laugh at things that should not be mocked, but let them rather marvel that through such a paltry thing things divine have been manifested to us. So that through death, incorruptibility has come to all. Talking about Christ's death. And through the incarnation of the Word, the universal providence, its giver and creator, the very Word of God, have been made known. For he was incarnate that we might be made God, and he manifested himself through a body that we might receive an idea of the Invisible Father. And he endured the insults of human beings, So that we may inherit incorruptibility. Here's this great idea that Athanasius is so well known for: uh, that God, the Son of God, became man so that He might make men to become like Him, to become like God. Uh, Christ quotes also, quoting from uh, the Psalms, when uh, he's confronted by the Pharisees. He goes back to, "I say to you, you're gods." You know, talking about how God has long foreshadowed that He is raising up humanity not to be. God like him, but to be raised up into incorruption, to be raised up to be like the Son in the incorrupted body that he has, which is why we get this wonderful language that Christ is telling us, that the Father has adopted us to be like him, adopted us to be in this family. With Eastern theology, it goes through the uh, the doctrine of theosis, which is becoming more and more like God. In the Western church, we call it sanctification that we are being sanctified further and further, drawn closer to Christ, will not be made perfect until the resurrection of the body, until our union with Christ at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. But what God has done through the Son of God is absolutely fantastic. It's more than just do a reset, let's just reboot, restart the computer, and start back in the garden in Genesis. No, it's taking us, as the promise was there in Genesis, raising us up to be ever closer and more and more like him. And a good way to kind of look into the the poetry of this and the beauty of what God and his grace is doing through the Son, is really kind of thrown at us through Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, the divine beings, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." Yes.
2: Okay, so who was talking right at that moment?
0: Well, many people are talking. Asaph, who wrote the psalm, the Spirit of God, who inspired us. They said
2: the council of the gods. The council of the gods. What gods?
0: Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we see at the very beginning of Genesis when he says to the divine council. Who the is the divine
2: council?
0: I'm getting to that. <laughs> and when you go back to Genesis and you hear, "Let us make them." In our image, in the image of God, He made them, and He talks about how in the divine council. If you are going through like the original scriptures, there, it's the council that God is talking to, and uh, so Son it's of Holy Ghost. you have well, it's two different things. You have God Himself. God is one, you know, and let us, you know, the divine Trinity. But He's speaking also to the divine council, and that council is the spiritual beings, what we would call the angels, you know, and those who rebel, you know, the demons. And then he says here in Psalm 82 that there's this promise. And and see, Christ pulls this psalm and talks about, you know, how, look, we will not be married like we're married today, but in the new creation, we will be like the angels. And then people commonly take that and think, people turn into angels when they die. And it's like, no, 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 it's not that. We will be like the spiritual beings but in flesh, still with the body and the resurrection body. And so spiritual, like the angels, but more than an angel, we're made in the image of God. And so we are lifted up like this divine counsel that God has, you know, with the angelic host, as we say, the angelic army. And so in Psalm eighty-two, and the beauty of it, God is talking about how He's taken place in the divine council. Is bringing up this kingly metaphor: the king comes to his council with his fellow counselors, with those who are in his court, and he holds court. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, there in the midst of it, quote, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. He holds judgment, and then he has this crying out. Of I tell you that you are Gods, your sons the most high, but nevertheless you die like men and like any other prince because of our sin. So there's this dot 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 in Psalm eighty two of we die and yet we're called to be lifted up. Who shall lift us up? Christ. Yes. And in this transformation and this glorification, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul will say, you know, we everything will be transformed. We will be transformed. We will be made, you know, more perfect and made like the Son of God. And so the cry out in Psalm 82, which is very appropriate for Advent, is, Arise, O God, and judge the earth. You will inherit the nations. Mm -hmm. It's good news that God comes and judges the earth because it means he's eradicating sin. And if we are clinging to Christ, we are made like him and like Christ. And so think of it this way. If you're looking at your, your English translations, When it talks about God, God is usually translating the word, you know, like Elohim is translating, uh, it says the Lord is translating Yahweh, I am who I am, the eternal divine name. And then when it has like gods, it's lowercase. It's talking about, it's showing a distinguishing in what word is being translated there. Because the spiritual beings are being called gods with a little g. It doesn't mean that you worship them. It doesn't mean that they have the same power as the one true God. But it's a term of art that is used throughout Scripture. And so the point that Athanasius is making, and the point that's made in Scripture, is that we are being given God's very own spirit. We're not being given like, hey, my own personal spirit is changed. I'm better than who I once was. I'm better, but I'm only better than who I once was because I'm not who Mm -hmm. I am anymore. God defines me. God has given me his purpose. God gives me his spirit. So... So I want you to understand, like, I'm not saying that like you become God with a big G. Now, that's not what's happening. It's not a nirvana, it's not like you're a drop into the ocean and you can't tell the difference. It's that God is, is touching us, and what God touches, He makes holy. And he gives us His spirit, and He makes us even higher than the angels, which is why Christ says to His apostles, Do you not know that you will be judging the angels? No wonder the demons hate us. The demons are jealous, the demons are offended by the fact that God made a muddy creature in the flesh, in his image. And even after they try to wreak havoc and bring sin into the world, he still loves us so much that he sends his only son to die for us and then to raise us up and then to give us with his spirit and then to promise, I will transform you. I will glorify you. And that's good news, to be able to be there glorifying God and then be given so much that we do not deserve. Although for us, you know, as redeemed Christians, our response should be like what John sees in revelation, that group of elders, the twenty four twelve representing the twelve tribes of Israel, twelve representing the twelve apostles, who also represent the twelve tribes of Israel, being restored and renewed. this figurative language, what do they do? They take their crowns and they cast it down. We're given a crown, a small crown, you know, like Christ, who is the true king, that we are like princes you know underneath him. And then what do we do with those crowns? We cast them down because we're not worthy. Only he is worthy. And we cry out to him over and over with the angels and archangels. Holy, holy, holy. That, that's the beauty of the picture of this great story of Scripture is that God has so much more in plan for us at his advent than we can possibly imagine. We get glimpses within the Scripture but if you want the whole story, we will know when we learn it together. Yeah. <laughs> it has not been written out in details. And that drives us as Westerners especially you know, quite mad because we like we to do. know.
2: You know we, are. we like
0: to be on a schedule you <laughs> know, and have things listed crazy. out. It's
2: okay. <laughs> All in the same boat.
0: So with the, the Eastern Church, they're uh, like Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox. They'll talk and they'll really dwell upon theosis about how God is going to glorify us. Not that that's bad or anything, but they will, to their detriment, I will say, they will overlook and miss out on the justification that Christ gives us. That reminder that we can't do it without Christ. They won't deny that and say that that we can do it without Christ. That would be a heresy that we would go into. Arianism and several other different heresies of the church. But there's an overlooking of, remember that we are miserable offenders miserable sinners, and yet God has such love for us, and he gifts us grace. It's constantly a gift of grace. So while we need to remember that, like, we are but dust, and to dust we shall return, and yet, through faith, he promises to raise that dust back up into life. And it's not that this dust he made us from was evil. No, creation is good, and that's why he renews it and transforms it. And we hear uh, we hear in Daniel, we hear in Revelation, we hear it throughout scriptures, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This renewal of the cosmos. that The cosmos, you know, a lot of people like anchor in on like the fire aspect of like, it's burned up, and they think that like it's gone, we're just floating space bodies, and that's it, in some heavenly realm. You know, they forget there's the judgment of fire, you know, as opposed to the judgment by water in Noah's time. But the fire refines, renews, and creates the new heavens and the new earth. That's why, like, next time you're reading through Scripture, pardon me, pay attention, especially in the epistles, you hear it a lot. Uh, You hear it in the Gospels, too, but Paul talking about being refined. Peter talks about being refined by fire in in the imagery. Christ talks about, I came for a baptism. It's a baptism by fire, and how I would love to release it upon the world but it was not yet his time to do it in his earthly ministry. Because you read that and you're like, well, Lord, do it. You know, like, I don't, if that's what you're supposed to do, then I don't understand what's holding you back. Lord, you're God, son of God, son of man. You know? But in that time period in which he says that, it's not yet time. He has to go and die for our sins. We can't receive the Spirit unless he eradicates death, conquers sin, destroys Satan's claim over us, and now he's redeemed us. He's bought us back you got to think of it like buying a slave. It's so foreign, and especially in the American context, we think of, of American slavery. But we are slaves, once to sin, death, and Satan. Slaves to an evil master who hates us and wants to kill us. And now we've been bought by a master who loves us, who gifts us. And not only gifts us, but then adopts us as sons within the family. And that's where like understanding the history of a Roman adoption can really help to understand Not only like the slavery of their time, I'm not saying that it was grand or anything like that, a lot different than American slavery uh, and how it was. But the adoption of the slave, you know, is something that would happen in the Roman context. And it helps you to understand better that God is just so gracious and just pouring out himself upon us. And not just simply saying, I'm going to give you a pass. That's where you see like the other end of it of, of Christianity on a popular scale, especially in the American context, is what is Christianity? God gave you a pass. All you gotta do is believe that God gives you a pass for your sin. And it's like I mean you're, you're you're scratching justification, but now you're missing sanctification. You're missing so much more. And you've got to have not a healthy tension between the two, but a helpful whole portion. You know. I don't think any of us would go to a dinner and would just eat the salad and not eat the main course. Or, I mean, some of us, I would do this. I'd skip and go to dessert, you know. But I'd still be hungry enough (laughs) that I'd end up plowing back to the entree, you know. But we got to do that, you know. Like, if you skip one, you're not going to be full. If you eat the salad and you don't have the main course, you're going to be hungry. If you eat the dessert and you don't eat the main course, you're going to still be hungry. So that's why it's healthy to have a holistic view of what is God doing. And that's why get in the scripture and read it. Have questions, you know. Like, it's going to perplex your mind. And not every question has a perfect answer for us humans. But there's, <laughs> <know you> <laughs> but there's a lot of answers. I know you do. But there's a lot of answers. I want a very
2: clear answer every time. I don't want it
0: convoluted.
1: <laughs> there's a, there's a relatively going back to one of your points, there's a whole book in scripture Yeah, about what you were talking about, and that's Hosea.
0: It is it's a perfect picture of yeah. what has God done for us. You know, What, you know, what is God doing? You know, what does it look like? Hosea's love for Gomez, you know, and his constant going after and pursuing her is, and God tells Hosea from the very beginning, you know, like, I've got good news, bad news for you. You're a prophet of the Lord. I'm giving you a message, but you're going to live out a life that shows us. You're going to marry Gomez. She's not going to be faithful to you, but you're going to continue to be faithful to her. Despite, you know, like, it's not written in Hosea, but if you know the law, you know that Hosea would be under full rights to divorce her. I mean, like, she commits multiple, you know, sexual uh, adulteries, you know, breaking the marriage covenant. And yet God says, but you're going to continue to to love her and to pursue her and to forgive her. And you will be a living example of who I am as God for you, Israel, and what I'm doing for you.
1: And he brought her
0: back. Yeah, constantly. She sells herself into slavery and he goes and purchases the money to bring her back into freedom. And that's where we are. That's who we are. Um, it's one of those things where you don't like to hear it, but when you read Hosea, you got to remember, I am <clears throat> Gomez. I am Gomez. I'm not Hosea. I'm Gomez. And uh, and the call is that although I am Gomez, that I'm a saved uh, sinner in the hands of God, and therefore I'm called to be a Hosea to others mm-hmm. out there. I'm called to also forgive just he forgave us. I know that's hard. Advent is a good time to to work on it, to pray for the grace, and, and to discipline I ourselves. So good. Oh, man, i keep keep doing it. And so what we see here is Athanasius is continuing to uh, take us through and to remind us how the the Gentiles are changing, and it cannot be simply through the wisdom of the Greeks. That's covered in chapter 55. I've talked about that, really. But it's really because God of God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, the true son and, quote, only begotten word of God, as he says at the end of chapter 55, is the one who's creating this change within our hearts. And Athanasius talks big picture looking at the nations, because he's seeing that in his own lifetime. And that will continue uh, to occur past Athanasius' lifetime. But it's just as applicable to, and especially in our context, to the people we meet. That we've all had experiences of seeing someone at some point who's come to Christ, and if we're honest, it's probably ourselves, and seeing them like, I'm not who I once was, thank God. I'm not yet who I should be, but thank God I'm not who I once was. And others when we see, yeah, we, and we see and they're like, there's this radical life transformation. Not because they decided to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps a lot better this time. Because Christ has impacted them. His spirit is within them. He's changing them and working through them. That needs to be our prayer to this season of Advent, to be intentional about that. Lord, you know the sins I'm struggling with. Help me. And help me to actually want your help. Because a lot of times I pray for it, and then the temptation comes. You know, the old man you know starts to come out, and I don't do anything but just let the old man, the old sin just fall into place instead of crying back out to you, Lord now, now's when I need you And he answers those prayers. He always does. It's only because we don't want to pray to him, that we don't want to cry out, because we don't want to give up the sin that we're dealing with, that we don't do that, that we don't cry out in the moment in which we need him. And even more so than our own personal spiritual disciplines, how we love and serve one another. You know, at least the world still retains that image of the season. They think it's already Christmas. We're not there yet. We're in Advent. But they do have that that old, you know, saying, those remnants of Christendom is in the mind of the world, in the spirit of the age, of we should serve people, we should help one another. And the philosophical question that needs to be asked is like, why are you helping and loving and serving your fellow man? If we're all just matter and there's nothing in this world. It's only because of the spirituality of Christianity permeating, you know, especially the Western culture, in which it reverses. Like Athanasius says, the selfish, watch out for me, myself, my own tribe, that we start to become very much you know, helping others, doing acts of charity, doing service. And it's fascinating that that level has still remained with much of culture, to a certain extent at least. And yet the reasoning for it, you know, can't quite be articulated, you know. And if it is, it's, you know, well, for love of fellow man, you know, like, so in the name of our species is worthy to survive, we should help one another. It doesn't really speak a lot of love and charity. It doesn't really warm the heart as, no, you're made in God's image and you're so worthy that God died on that cross for you, for you as a person. If he did that for me, then how dare I withhold anything from my own to my fellow man who's in need of not only the gospel, but also has spiritual needs as well, or maybe physical needs in addition to the spiritual needs. So that's why we as a church are constantly called, go forth, go out there, pointing back to the one who redeemed you. I mean, don't glorify me if I went and did something you know, to help out. I'm doing what Christ would do. And to get brought back to Matthew 25, which won't be talked today, but let's go to it. When Christ is talking about the judgment and talking about his disciples asking, him, when will this happen? He goes through this discourse that will hit um, as we go into uh, the gospel this morning. Excuse me. In Matthew 25, he. He ends, you know, his discourse in 24 of no one knows the day or the hour. We'll hear that again today in Mark 13. Then he goes into a couple of parables. The parable of the ten virgins. If you recall, five of them brought enough oil extra, awaiting, awaiting, awaiting the bridegroom. And I won't go into what would happen at a wedding feast, but this is something typical of which, like, you'd be awaiting to greet the bride and the groom, as they come, you know, to where they're going to uh, stay and live. You know, we think of like honeymoons and all, and you're like, that's kind of weird. There's no honeymoons, you know, back then. You're going to where you're going to live together, make a home, make a family. And so you greet them, you know, like, welcome to your home. So they're waiting, and five of them have extra oil, because we don't know how long the party's going to end where they're at, so we can greet them when they come. The other five bring just enough, you know, for basically the first few hours. They run out then they go, and they have to go and buy some more oil. And by the time they come back, the bridegroom has already come, and the bridegroom won't let them in. They, the virgins, who didn't prepare, say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answers, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Then he gives another parable, the parable of the talents, in which the master goes off. He gives a servant five talents, two talents, and one talent. The one with five goes and produces a multitude. The one who has two does likewise. He doubles his. But the one who has one says, quote, excuse me. Let me actually say this. So the one who does two and the one who has five and they make more money essentially for the master while he's gone, the master says the same thing to you. I will set, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then he goes to the one with one talent. He says this, Master, I know you're a hard man. You reap where you did not sow. You gather where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. So I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. The master answered him, You wicked and slothful, you lazy servant. It's interesting because you're like, How is he wicked? I mean, he gave him back what is his own. But because he did not serve. He did no work. He was lazy. If he truly had fear of, you know, his master, of his lord, then he would have done, quote, as the master says, If you knew this, then you ought to have uh, inserted my money with the bankers. At my coming, I would have at least received what was my own and with interest. Then he says, Take the talent from him, give it to the one who had ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant to the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so after telling you know, these two parables, which would really, you know, shake the conscience of the disciples, soon to be apostles, of, you know, so we're called to give everything. You know, we're called to go back, you know, let's go back a few Sundays to render to Caesar what is Caesar, and then render to God what is God's. Sure, if Caesar wants his taxes, pay his taxes. I mean, even God uses Caesar, as Paul will say, you know, and even an evil madman Caesar to restrain wickedness and to uphold justice. So give back to him, his image on him, but give to God what is God's. And that's everything, all of our lives. It's more than just money. It's everything about us, including money, but it's everything about us. And so then he continues, and the final judgment Uh, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, I'm reading from Matthew 25, verse 31, He'll sit on his glorious throne, before whom will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people from one another like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll place sheep on the right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Because we see this evidence of the faith that the people have in Christ. Because what happens? Verse 35, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you drink? When do we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? When do we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so you see here this description of what does it look like to live lives of faith. And it's the same thing that Luther points out. The Roman Catholics, you know, criticize Luther and the other Reformers. You're saying that you can just sit around and do nothing. That you can just profess with your lips that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're completely good. And Luther says, no, that we are justified by faith alone. But our faith is never alone. That a true faith has an outwork It's what James talks about throughout his epistle. Paul talks about it as well. People forget that. It's why uh, Cramner and the English Reformers as well talks about, and you can see it in the back of our prayer books, our doctrine of justification and our doctrines about what about good works. Well, good works before justification don't please God. We're just doing it out of a sinful nature to please ourselves really or for an ulterior motive. And we really still have that with us. We have to battle that even after we're redeemed, after we're justified. But the good works we're called into shows a lively faith, that I truly have faith in Christ, that I know that if it's just up to me, I would not be doing this on my own. If I do good, it's almost, you know, one part accidental, and it's one part being trustworthy of Christ. You've given me your spirit. You've called me to do this. Lord, give me the right spirit to go and to do what is good. And it's another thing that we have to battle with, you know, that, that, you know, what Luther would say being a sinner and a saint, that even as we're redeemed and we're doing good things, you know, helping out people, not to get boastful and prideful, because it's really easy to turn to that Pharisee and to be in that temple and say, thank God that I'm not a sinner, like that tax collector over there. And instead, the tax collector, you know, bowing his head before God, knows his sin and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that tax collector, he went justified. He had a true faith. Whereas the Pharisee got everything upside down, you know, started putting the cart before the horse and said that, like, yeah, it's because of my righteousness and my good works that I am redeemed. No, no, it's only because of Christ. That lively faith is only because of Christ. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think this put the, the concept of uh, you come from the, the dirt, and you have to work in the Mm -hmm. dirt to get the food to sustain your body, then you return to the dirt. Yes. That whole concept really keeps you, like, or really nothing. Yeah, grounded, pun intended. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a crazy concept. Yeah, it is.
0: And I think, like, we see so much. You know, we're we're in a very mechanized world that no one foresaw, you know, uh, even a few hundred years ago, much less in the ancient world. And we need to get grounded. I think it's it's good. One of the, the New Year's resolutions, I never really make a resolution, but one of my intentions for spring at least is to just plant a small garden. Just get my hands dirty and learn a little bit more about how hard it is to grow anything. Because I can grow weeds like crazy. But, uh, but just to, to be humbled by that, you know, because so much of Scripture is about the dirt, the land, the growing, you know, and, um, and I've joked around with care before I was like, I really start to feel a little bit of the the fall even more when I'm pulling weeds and those stubborn ones, you know, that you let, if you leave them alone and they start growing, it's a pain in the, you know, where to pull out that weed when you're literally pulling back with all your force, you know, and then finally the, the weed snaps and you're in there trying to get all the, the roots out so it doesn't grow back up again. There's a lot of metaphor and reality about not only the sin of the world, but also about you know how you see that if I don't deal with my sin now, it'll be, it'll be literally hell to pay to deal with my sin later on. Deal with it now, deal with it early, deal with it often. And moreover than that, but also then you start reading the scriptures and, and Christ talks about how there's this parable of how seeds have been planted, and then all of a sudden amongst you know this wheat you know there's these tares, these weeds are growing up amongst it the servant says like Lord what should I do? should I go in and start pulling He says no no you'll end up harming both you know like the good and the bad await the harvest reap the harvest, and then we'll separate you know and then it's just like it's helping that imagery yes, you starts to really kind of see you know like okay, yeah, I see what the Lord is saying here even clearer. Now, obviously, you don't have to get your hands dirty to understand what the Lord is saying to us. But um, anyway, there's I'm not While why I'm sharing this, but that's one of the personal intentions that I have uh, for next year. But it,
1: seems
0: like yes. the,
1: it seems like the key phrase is true and lively uh-huh. faith. The idea that just, true justifying faith is a true and lively faith. Yes. It's going to be productive of works, um, are, in, for instance, Catholic critics of uh, of, uh, of Protestantism who, and, you know, they can find some examples in the Protestant world. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because, yeah. You know, where they, um, they're critical of what they believe Protestants to say, you know, just believe you're forgiven and you're forgiven and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's, you know. The reformers would have uh, would have had great trouble. Oh, absolutely! With that yeah. kind of simplistic mm-hmm. thing. I think the idea that somebody who had true faith, um, you know, that they would not be productive of good good works would have just been an idea that reformers couldn't have even understood.
0: Mm-hmm. That, and that's where, like, historically speaking, you you've heard probably at some point, mm-hmm. you know, the Protestant work ethic and what that comes from is really the line of thought coming from, pardon me, Calvin and his school of thought of. One of the things that he talked about when it came to works is, you know, how do you know, you know, that you're redeemed? And the, the Calvinist school of thought, for better or for worse, will stress, well, will look at what are you doing? How are you living your life? And they're drawing that from aspects of Scripture. And so what you see is this Protestant work ethic of, I need to be out there working and doing you know, works and good things, being productive because the Lord has called me not to be lazy or slothful. Now if you take that to heart too much, you can actually flip it and you turn yourself back into a Pharisee where you're just looking at, I've done a lot of good stuff, and you start looking around like these people aren't doing what they need to be doing You know, like, they, they need to be working harder You know, like, and then all of a sudden you, you got into a Pharisee mindset, but uh, that's a school of thought that, that's very Calvinist in thinking. Uh, Luther is very much uh, of this thought that you're going to have a lively faith but don't ever start measuring those works. You know, as soon as you start doing that, you've entered into Phariseism. Instead, remind yourself that I have faith. It's only because of a gift of God. It's only because I was baptized, you know, and gifted this faith that I must be faithful to. And so therefore, give grace back to God and cry out to him to constantly, you know, reform yourself and to lead you. And that's, you know, a good metaphor and a good vision to have, is that Lord, you have redeemed me. I trust in you. You give us such gracious promises that you will not lose any one of your sheep whom the Father has given over to you. So, Lord, like a sheep, keep leading me. Help me, you know, I'm like a dumb sheep. I keep wandering off. Help me to keep looking to you and hearing your call and going back to you and following after why you made me. You know, you made me to serve you in your kingdom. Uh, another thing that, that I'll add is before we wrap up here. Yeah, we need to wrap up is that when it comes to, you know, how we work and serve the Lord, it's not simply like, I went out and, and, especially in the modern American context, we think of, I go out and I do something charitable. I did some active service. And we think of like, oh, when I, when I you know, fed the poor, when I did, you know, um, a clothing drive, when I helped do X, Y, and Z, that's when I was doing my good work. And we forget, and Luther's great about this, talking about the vocation of the daily life. When we love our spouse and our children and our home, that is the beginning. When we go to our neighbor and we love them, we serve them, and we just meet the small immediate need. Can you grab my mail while I'm gone? Absolutely. You know, like that's walking in the new life. And then, you know, like it's a little bit of like taking off those training wheels and just realizing it's every aspect of life. When the opportunity presents itself, love and serve, love and serve. And then I can also, this is really easy to do like picking up the mail or something. Will you mow my lawn? Really don't want to mow your lawn, if I'm honest with myself, you know? Like, but can I do it? You know, like, and of course it varies in circumstances, but like, man, I can do it. I don't have any reason why I couldn't. This is an example, you know, like, all right, yeah, you know, like I, I can mow your lawn. You're like, while well, you're gone, we'll, we'll handle that, we'll cover that, you know? And then it goes into like the, we, we call it bigger. But Luther makes a good point that like every act is huge because it's an act of rejecting sin, spitting back at Satan's face and walking in the service and love of God. Because even Jesus talks about if someone says walk for a mile, walk the second mile, you know. It's easy, simplistic, straightforward, you know. And then he starts going like if someone, you know, asks for a coat, you know, like give it to him, you know, like all right, Lord, you get a little bit personal now. But that's showing that God is raising us up. Yes, ma'am.
2: Yeah, I was just saying that It's, um, you can keep giving to that neighbor and Mm -hmm. cutting their grass. You do it once out of grace, and then you do it again, and you know, you're testing yourself. And then what if they ask you a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time? In other words, they like you cutting their grass. (laughs) And And when do you say... Well, that's
0: enough. Yeah. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Yay, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I'm
2: seven. Yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta
2: keep cutting, sorry. <laughs> yeah. now, you
0: Gotta keep cutting,
1: yeah. huh? Keep well, cutting. And, but in that situation, <laughs> yeah. that's more than just your giving mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. person.
0: Well, I mean, to get to... What's sorry. the
1: message that you need to be... That that kind of thing sort of brings out the message yeah. that you need to be sending to the person. Yeah. because we're, Th-
0: This we're, goes you know, to, well, look at this. I know what you're really getting at. Let's be practical about it. This isn't, you know, the rule of God. You know, this is me, you know, like giving some practical advice so take it with a grain of salt. If we're not sharing the gospel with our tongue, we're not really helping anyone. If someone's taking advantage of you, which we're like, well, I don't want to be taken advantage of. Well, then speak up not, you're taking advantage of me, but... Talk about who Christ is, you know. And if they're a fellow Christian, they go to another church, they go to our church or something, and and they're really taking advantage of you. are like, brother, you know, like, let's just be honest. You're well able to do X or Y. I'm more than happy to help you out. But I think it's time in the love of Christ, especially when you're dealing with a brother and sister in Christ. There's lots of guidance there of how to rebuke one another even. But there's also a lot that God demands of us when helping one another. So... Just check yourself before you say, mm, I'm just going to call an audible and, and not help or not serve. Or also look and see, like, am I just doing this and I am being taken advantage of, but I've never mentioned who is God, who is Christ, to try to hopefully plant the seeds of repentance so that if I have to say, like, look, you know, like, let's be honest. We know what's happening. You're, you're taking advantage of me. If you're, I was more than happy to help out here or there. But you're willing and able. You know, you're not harmed. You're not ill. You're not unable to do this. You know, let's... Let's pray about this, you know. like, And that's challenging. We don't want to get personal if we're honest with ourselves. We'd rather just be at a distance in like a give-or-take system, a financial exchange. If I do this for you, the next time around you'll do that. We all do that. We all keep in our little, you know, checkbook of of favors. And that's not how God works. (laughs) That is not how God works at all. And that's where we need to discard that. And you need to to discard that. We need to be less worried about... Know, I'm going to be taken advantage of, and more worried about what will the Lord say, you know, like at the end. Well, Lord, you know, like uh, this person is very honorary, this person, you know, is trying to take advantage of me. Well, did you speak who I am, you know? Did you tell them that you're concerned that, like, you know, I'm doing this, but I'm being a friend to you to say, I think that you can kind of take this and handle it on your own. If you're ever in a bind again, you know, I can help you out, but. Let's also, you know, look at the situation and call a spade a spade. We don't like that. We like to be non-confrontational, and what's worse is we like to just simply not share the gospel and not talk about who Christ is and what He's doing for us. Because you may have opportunities where maybe someone is, you know, simply being lazy, but then you have an opportunity to go in afterwards, sit over a cup of coffee, you know, share some drink with them, and then you get to learn more about that person. I guarantee you that. The problem, you know, is more than just sin. It's also because they're lonely because they feel that you know, the world is out to get them. And it's like, I have actually some good news for you that like the world is out to get all of us. But Christ has redeemed us. And you don't need to feel like the, that you got to take advantage of someone, even if you're not thinking about it that way. But uh, I got to get wh- whatever I can. It's a give or take world. And I it's got to keep taking and stop giving. Yes, so that's, that's something that I
2: have
0: an issue with. We, we have to minister to people. We have to. And the call of ministering to people is all of us. It's that priesthood of all believers. So so let's close with this. And the conclusion here, it really steers us towards Advent. So he points out, and he starts to go through the several portions of Scripture. He talks about how that Christ has manifested himself to us in lowliness. But soon he shall return and that when he returns, I will say to you hereafter, quote, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming upon the clouds of heaven in the glory of the Father, Matthew 26, which is really drawing from Daniel's vision in Daniel uh, 7. Therefore, the saying is salutary, which prepares us for that day, saying, from Matthew 24, Be ready and watch, for he will come at an hour that you do not know. For according to even the blessed Paul, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive... According to what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, which goes back to what we're just now discussing. Remember that we've been given this body for a reason. We've been given salvation for a reason. We've been given a deposit not to just bury in the ground, really not even just to put in the bank and make some interest off of, but to invest it in others. You know, it's one of the parables that really speaks to America is, you know, taking money and investing it in the bank. But you got to go take a risk. And invest it. Go invest it in other people. Go get your hands dirty by ministering to others. And then he concludes with us here in chapter 57. In addition to study and to true knowledge of the scriptures, Athanasius always drawing us back like a good Protestant. (laughs) No, like a good faithful Christian. Back to the scriptures. In addition to that, there's needed a good life and a pure soul. And the virtue which is according to Christ. So that the mind guided by it. May be able to attain and comprehend what it desires, as far as is possible for human nature to learn about God's word. Without a pure mind and a life model in the saints, no one can comprehend the words of the saints. For just as if someone would wish to see the light of the sun, he would certainly wipe and clear his eyes, purifying himself to be almost like that which he desires. So that as the eye thus becomes light, it may see the light of the sun. Or, just as if someone would wish to see a city or a country, he would certainly go to that place for that sight. In the same way, one wishing to comprehend the mind of theologians must first wash and cleanse his soul by the manner of life and approach the saints themselves by imitation of their works, so that being with them in the conduct of common life, he may understand the things revealed to him, and thenceforth as joined to him, may escape the peril of sinners and the fire of the day of judgment, so that we may receive what's been laid up for the saints in the kingdom of heaven, quote, which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have they entered into the heart of man, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Whatsoever things have been prepared for those who live a virtuous life and love the God, the Father and in Christ Jesus, our Lord, through whom and with whom to the Father and the Son himself and the Holy Spirit, be honor and power and glory to ages of ages. Amen. And he he closes out his book. And so the big takeaway in that beautiful, you know, lovely worded passage is that we're called to deny ourselves, to walk in the virtues that Christ has modeled for us. And that will help us to better understand the very scriptures that he has given over to us. Because if we come to the scriptures, you know, unclean, not wanting to uh, repent, not desiring anything more than, you know, just give me a nice little tidbit. You know, something that's a nice little sound bite that I can take and use on my own. We're not going to really be molded by the scriptures. But if we come to the scriptures of, like, forgive me, Lord, praying before we open up the scriptures. Lord, help me to understand what you're saying. Convict me where I need to be convicted. And then, Lord, help me to be led to repentance that leads to life. Help me to, you know, not just simply copy you and fail miserably, but to be enlivened by you through your spirit who does live within us, sinners. Because we have that simple mustard seed faith. Lord, grow that spirit, that mighty, powerful, holy spirit, the same spirit who hovered above the waters of creation, the same spirit who dwelt within his prophets, and the same spirit whom you've gifted to us. Enliven and inflame that spirit so that, as we'll hear next week, John the Baptist says that I must decrease and he must increase. So, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for using the work of St. Athanasius to steer us back into your scriptures. We ask you, O Lord, to cleanse now the thoughts of our hearts and our minds, to purify our spirits, O Lord, so that we may render to you worthy worship. And we thank you that you take our, our filthy rags as worship, Lord, and then you give us back yourself, your very own self, same Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE or additionally visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com and go over to the menu item listed donate to donate online. We appreciate any help that you can give and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9am for Bible study and at 10.30am for Sunday worship. God bless.